Welcome to the Aerospace Engineering Podcast. My name is Rainer Groh, Research Fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering, and on this podcast I have conversations with aerospace pioneers about new technologies at the cutting edge of aerospace design and research. Special thanks go to my supporters on Patreon, who make this podcast possible. If you enjoy the Aerospace Engineering Podcast and would like to support it, then head over to patreon.com forward slash aerospace. There are multiple levels of support, but pledging even a dollar an episode is highly appreciated. Thanks for your support. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh... Dr. John Williams is an engineer at Lamentum, where he works on the extreme challenges of submillimeter scale photonic circuits. For the purpose of this conversation, however, we will be discussing John's former role as a design engineer at Reaction Engines, a UK company that is developing the synergetic air-breathing rocket engine, also known as Sabre. The vision of Sabre is to build a new hypersonic engine that can operate both as an air-breathing jet engine and as a traditional rocket. This versatility means Sabre can be used as a propulsive platform for future hypersonic aircraft or to propel space planes into orbit. Furthermore, Sabre combines the unique fuel efficiency of a jet engine with the power and high-speed ability of a rocket. Having started at reaction engines early on when there were only two people in the design office, and later founding his own design and manufacturing company, John has many years of high-tech experience in the aerospace sector. So in this episode of the Aerospace Engineering Podcast, John and I talk about his background as an aerospace engineer, the benefits of an air-breathing rocket engine, the particular design challenges in realizing this type of engine, and his lessons learned from high-tech development. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did, but now without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. John Williams. John, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a long time coming. So to kick off our conversation today, would you mind telling our listeners a little bit about yourself? So how did you become interested in engineering? And uh, what is it? Uh, what is your background as an engineer? Okay, so I'm, I guess it's a, a little bit of a cliche. When I was young, I used to love playing with Lego and Meccano which is, I guess, the route for a lot of people. Um, I didn't really know engineering existed until I was, I guess, like 16 as a career. Um, and I, I didn't go to a particularly fancy schools as sort of just standard UK secondary education. Um, I did okay in my GCSEs, but I did really bad in my A-levels. So I think in a way that was good because it it realised I have to work hard. And then when I got to university, it gave me that motivation to work harder. And I was lucky enough to get in to do a, an engineering degree at UWE in Bristol. Great. And I think we, so we have a shared background in that yeah. we did have both, both did a PhD in the same research group at the University of Bristol in composite materials. So I guess you then followed up that uh, undergraduate degree at the University of West of England with a PhD in, uh, in the partner university or the second university in Bristol. Um, so could you describe in a nutshell what you did during your, re- during your PhD? What was it that you were researching? 
Um, so I was looking at plasma treatment of carbon nanotubes and carbon fibers. And I guess in the nutshell is, can you use plasma treatment to make them bond better with epoxies? And the answer is yes, you can. Or you can make them bond worse with epoxies if you wanted to, depending on the processing gas you used. All right, Nick. So I guess nanotubes are broadly speaking used to reinforce plastic. So it's kind of what we sometimes refer to as a as a nano composite, where the plastic is a is a relatively, um, you know, compliant material, not necessarily very strong, and you can reinforce that plastic with things like carbon fiber or or, or nanofibers. So 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 the question, the follow up question is, why would you want the nano tubes to to bond better to the epoxy plastic why why is that something that needs to be looked into okay that is a good question and i guess there's a couple things with that um so carbon nanotubes in their raw form are really hard to work with they're almost like grit and granular so then they don't separate or mix very well in epoxy so part of the research is using plasma could you in the mixing of the carbon nanotubes and uh, which you can do but to the extent to make a real difference is debatable the other parts of in theory carbon nanotubes are really really strong so in in their like unit single form they're like one of the strongest materials um, on earth but because they're entangled into like a ball of grit it's very difficult to realize those properties. So that's, a, that's sort of the second part of the PhD is can you disperse the carbon nanotubes better to try and get more benefit from uh, from the like the inherent pro- properties of the carbon nanotubes. Um, and if you can get them to bond better, then you uh, well if they don't bond at all, you won't really gain the um, the advantages of them so there's like a i guess there's a critical fiber length in composites world where if your fiber is long enough it will act like a continuous fiber whereas if it's if it doesn't bond um you're not really it's well if it doesn't bond you're creating a defect in your composite i guess essentially yeah right so you want you want to the bond the nanotubes to the epoxies that have you have Kind of even in good context, so yeah, absolutely. So you can actually get the reinforcing effect rather yes, than well. than just being kind of a stress concentration or kind of like a hole in the epoxy that then causes cracks to initiate and things like that. So then, after you fi- you finished your PhD in Bristol, how did you end up at reaction engines? Because I guess at the time this would have been somewhere around I think two thousand fourteen. Um, reaction engines in the UK was, um, I mean, it was known in the engineering world, but I don't think it had the kind of broad um, reputation and kind of media spotlight that that it does now. So how did you end up at uh, reaction engines? And kind of broadly speaking, what was your engineering role there? Okay, yeah, so my the start of it started, I guess, a year into my PhD. I went to a talk by someone at reaction engines i can't for the life of me remember who did that talk now but i felt that was a company i wanted to work for um, but i knew i had to add another three years for my phd left so about six months before i knew i was going to finish my phd i hassled and hassled reaction engines so they they advertised a job as a design engineer and 
previously I worked as a design engineer at GK and Aerospace. So that tied up. Um, but I didn't get anywhere, either through the agency or direct. But thankfully, Ian Bond at Bristol University put me in touch with Helen Weber, who does work there. I guess the rest is history. Then I got got me interview and got my first job. Uh, my engineering role was, uh, well, I guess mechanical design engineer. But I guess in the earlier years, as there wasn't so many people, you kind of did a bit of everything. So you were on the shop floor testing things, um, doing pressure tests, uh, drawing, um, CAD work. So you pretty much got a very broad um, access to everything, which was brilliant, absolutely brilliant for learning. Yeah, it sounds like you basically did the all-around engineering job that, um, yeah, kind of as an undergraduate, you learn all of these things about engineering, thermodynamics, solid mechanics, drawing, manufacturing, and it sounds like you did a little bit of everything. So um, could you tell our listeners, you know, what what is the goal of reaction engines? Um, What is the kind of key technology that they are developing? And, you know, what is the goal of the company? Yeah, so I guess the goal of the company is to make space access affordable. And to, to quote Alan Bond, so Alan Bond is the one of the co-founders, he said, to make going into space boring, <laughs> which is brilliant. That's a good goal, yeah. Um, the I guess to do that is via an air-breathing rocket engine. That's a proposal. And the... It's, um, I guess, known as the Sabre engine, which is a synergistic air-breathing rocket engine. That's the acronym. Um, and I guess the idea, or the key technologies being the heat exchanger, which they've sort of already proven with like the latest HTX uh, hot testing in America. Okay, so if you want to make going into space boring, um, I guess making it kind of like a day-to-day occurrence or kind of a very frequent occurrence, why would you want to develop kind of this air-breathing rocket engines? What are the benefits of the air-breathing rocket engine over and beyond what we currently have in terms of having kind of uh, carrying the oxidizer and the fuel on a rocket and then going up into space? What are the the, the key benefits of this air-breathing rocket engine? Yeah, so yeah, so another good question. So the so it, I guess to put it in context, so sort of maybe eighty-five percent of the weight of a rocket on the launch pad is its propellant and most of that propellant's mass like in a ratio of six to one is uh, liquid oxygen so um and i guess in context again like saturn 5 has like 2000 tons something thereabouts of liquid oxygen on board so if you can save carrying as much liquid oxygen and the tanks and pumps associated it with it and use the air then there's potentially a lot of mass saving, which could be translated into payload. Okay, so from my kind of like reading of the kind of history of uh, space planes, um, I think there was kind of like a, a boom maybe in the in the 50s and 60s where people were kind of seriously considering this concept. So you just mentioned um, Alan Bond, um, one of the, the co-founders of Reaction Engines, I believe. So what is the history of the project at um, Reaction Engines and perhaps also of the air-breathing kind of concept in general? So how did it all start? And um, maybe where are some of the other p- key people that are involved at uh, Reaction Engines? 
Yeah, so I guess, yeah, air breathing rocket engines go back to the 50s and 60s with something called the LACE engine, which is uh, stands for liquid air cycle engine. So with this engine, the, uh, the onboard li- liquid hydrogen liquefies the air and then uses that. Um, then separates the air with oxygen under depending what what you read and burns the oxygen with the hydrogen and I guess so there's sort of two main problems with that is that I guess interestingly you need more liquid hydrogen than you can burn with the oxygen so it's quite wasteful in the amount of liquid hydrogen you need and two there's no um at ground there's no way to start to start the engine so from what you can find out on it, which is quite quite minimal, it looks like it relies on some sort of ram effect, so you can't start from zero. And that's kind of where Alan Bond comes in in the 1980s with the Hotel project. And that was like a collaboration with uh, Rolls-Royce and BAE. Um, and they found, well, in, in Alan Bond's proposal, they sort of uh, instead of liquefying the air they just cool it so you save a save on the amount of hydrogen you need and the other things uh, alan bond well they with the the engine they introduce a pre-burner so pre-burners are quite common in rocket engines are normally used to drive turbo pumps and machinery so upon bringing in the pre-burner you've got like a heat source and a cold source with the liquid hydrogen and you can drive machinery in between so that's that's where the hotel project and the rb545 starts with that concept they de- start developing the heat exchanges needed for it and they find out that the they get a big problem with frosting of the intake pre-cooler and then i guess in 1989 the government funding stops and the project stops but alan bond uh, Richard Varville and John Scott Scott, or the late John Scott Scott, who I sadly never met, uh, that same year founded Reaction Engines to start uh, to well to carry on where they left off with the development of the Sabre engine. And I'd just like to add that Alan Bond and Richard Varville, some of the cleverest and also the nicest people I've ever met. So it's an absolute pleasure to work with them. So once they founded Reaction Engines, I guess they went to work. Um, this is before I started, but trying to demonstrate a lightweight heat exchanger and the fos- and and to solve the frost control problem, which they did. Um, and I guess if the, any of the listeners are interested, there there are the, the patents are online, so you can find out how they did it. But if you want a sneak peek on it, um, if you read the patent, it says they use methanol as an antifreeze, but. I have been told by Alan that there are other methods of doing it. Okay, so you've just mentioned the, the kind of heat exchanger and, and the pre-cooler, essentially, that is one of the kind of key pieces of the technology to make this um, rocket engine work. Um, and in fact, um, recently, I, I was reading a little bit of uh, media to, to kind of like prepare myself for this interview. And it seems like Reaction Engines has recently been in, in the media quite a lot in the Due to the fact that they have kind of proven this technology works, um, I think as as you mentioned before in in tests in America, and so I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's basically what this precooler does: it takes in air that comes in at 2,000 or around, you know, just shy of 2,000 degrees Celsius, 
and then it cools it down to room temperature in a fraction of a second. So, I mean, of course, this sounds, you know, quite impressive, but why is, you know, having this capability, why is this such a key piece of technology to make the air breathing rocket work? Okay. Um, so on that, it's actually a thousand degrees, but the, the reason is when you get to Mach 5.5, the incoming air from like the I guess the ram effect um, jumps up to a thousand degrees C. So you under like a normal um, gas turbine engine, that's too hot to take in the intakes. So you need to cool that air down to be able to um, use it, basically. Okay, so I guess if you so if you cool it down to room temperature, if you cool the air down to room temperature, then I guess the kind of requirements on the materials that you would then use in kind of the oncoming stages of the engine, so compressor stages and other internal stages, would basically be be much less because you're operating at a lower temperature, and at the same time. I guess this still kind of relies on kind of like a turbine cycle where you take in some air, you compress it, you inject some fuel, and then then you you, you extract work. And I guess the the more you can compress the the air and the greater the temperature differences between taking the air in and then exiting from, from the compressor stages, the more work you can extract. So I guess it's probably also key just to cool the air down so that you can extract more energy out of the air. Well, yeah, that's correct. So the the energy, this is like the, the clever bit about the engine, I suppose, is it that like Alan Bonds rec- recognise that you've got a hot heat source and a cold source and you can use that to drive machinery. So the um, the uh, heat that comes out of the pre-cooler can be used directly to drive pumps and compressors and things like that. Okay, so what are some of the other kind of challenges that need to be kind of overcome to make this technology work? So I guess Reaction Engines has been successful in developing this this pre-cooler technology. So, but what else has to be done to basically make this a uh, reality so that, as, as you said before, going into space becomes boring? So I'm going to start with a quote from Sidney Cam, who's the designer of the Hurricane. And he says... Um, all modern aircraft have four dimensions, span, length, height, and politics. So I think the uh, the main one is the politics one. So these things are very expensive to develop. Um, and I think ESA have said themselves, sort of looking at half a billion pounds to develop the engine. Um, and I mean, Sidney Cam was saying this about the TSR2. So if any listeners are into um, conspiracy theories, uh, this is a great one, and if you don't mind, I've got a nice side pro- nice side comment on this. In um, I used to work with someone who worked on the TSR2, and he he was convinced that the Americans were trying to sabotage the project, and he told me that they gave them uh, the best hydraulic fluid on paper, but when they used it, it foamed up, and um, strip the paint off the cars outside. I've got no idea what it did to their lungs, but if it's stripping the paint to the cars outside, that's a, a story for another day, but it's interesting. So yeah, uh, politics being the, the number one challenge. But on, on the technical side is uh, marrying up, I guess, the, an air turbo compressor to a rocket engine. So a rocket engine combustion chamber 
might work between 150 to 200 bar whereas sort of like a state-of-the-art turbo compressor has a um, pressure ratio of 50 to 1 so you can see that cramming the air into a rocket combustion chamber is a is a bit of a trick so i guess in some ways reaction engines have sort of got an idea of how to do this and there is a pattern on it as well but the the idea is you'd use two different combustion chambers one for air breathing mode and one for rocket breathe uh, one for rocket mode then you can share the nozzles in like a concentric way to to allow you to do that Okay, and so what are per- perhaps then also some of the kind of auxiliary kind of applications for some of the technology that um, Reaction Engines has been developing? So, for example, you um, we, we talked about the kind of the pre-cooler before. Um, I guess this probably would have applications in lots of other areas as well. Yes, you're right. So Reaction Engines does have a department that looks at um, spinning off all this technology, and a lot of it's secret, and I can't talk about it, but... There are some in the news, but I mean, ed- everyone's interested in lightweight heat exchangers. So there is there is good spin-off on, on that side. Um, I guess going back almost probably to before I started, there was a project looking at hypersonic civil aircraft. So that's like the next uh, like one of the other possibilities. So you don't need a rocket mode. You don't carry any necessarily carry any, any onboard liquid oxygen. Um, that was a study with Ariel and ESA called the LAPCAT program. All right. Yeah. I mean, it definitely, when you, when you develop um, some of these kind of really extreme, um, extreme technology, essentially there, there tends to be, sometimes there's a value just in terms of just building it. And then lots of other applications pop up, which is kind of like what happened when we went to the moon, a lot of technology that was developed to go to the moon, which is of course, in the, especially in the '60s, was a rather extreme thing to do, or an extreme engineering feat. Um, you know, it, the technology that was developed was then also used in in, in a various of other fields, um, or tangential fields of engineering. And, and, and I presume that, of course, here it, it's the same. Part of the value of developing this is that um, you have something that has never been done before, and it opens up uh, the possibilities for lots of lots of um, other new technology. Yeah, that's that's correct. Absolutely correct. So yeah, reaction engines are looking at lots of different different types of heat exchangers and how to make them lightweight. Then yeah, the applications are endless. I think the the market for heat exchangers is huge. Yeah. So switching gears just a a little bit now. So of course, when when you're working on such kind of high tech development, um, I presume that there are plenty of organizational challenges that arise. So working in an engineering department, as you said before, I think you said you worked for um, GKN Aerospace, if, I, yeah. if, I, if I'm not mistaken. I guess working in an environment like that must be completely different than working um, for reaction engines. So could you perhaps you know, relate some of the organizational challenges that arise as you run kind of like a high-tech development project? Yeah, so I've thought about this a, a lot. And is it because is it matrix structure? So, like, I guess a big aerospace company like G, GKN or Aeroservices, where I was, as like a matrix structure versus traditional structure, which is what I sort of came into at Reaction Engines. And I'm not entirely sure it makes a huge difference in that every structure has its weaknesses and um, strengths. But again, it's sort of a Steve. Steve Jobs quote on this is you just got to hire base 
great people and I think if you get great people you can sort of break through the constraints of the um the structure that you're in and uh, I guess yeah so Steve Jobs basically says hire great people let them get on with it they don't need to be managed um which is I guess kind of controversial and uh, one other thing I'd like to add is that having a diverse team is really important as well so you don't want um, lots of people with the same experience so we were we fortunate when we were looking for people to look for people who had experience of machining and testing um, and some of the practical sides because for someone like me out of university I don't come with lots of practical experience so getting a diverse team is really important so I see that as the major organizational challenge getting great people and so I'd just like to also add that um, it's not always about knowledge either. It's about attitude. Well, there's an old saying that you can change someone's knowledge, but you can't change their attitude. So if you can get people that have a great attitude to work, to work hard, um, take pride in their work, but not be uh, have too much pride that they can't admit uh, for mistakes and when they're wrong and just happy to get on with work. That's that's the best thing. Yeah, it sounds like that in such an environment, perhaps your kind of scientific background as part of the the PhD um, project in the environment there maybe maybe helped out as well and prepared you well because I guess what you're ultimately doing there is is trying to kind of you know find out what what's true and what's not and um, that does is is very humbling a lot of times when you when you think you know something and you actually don't um, that uh, you you have to always have an open mind and um, not be too proud of your yep. last piece of work because it could turn out to just be wrong. So given your experience, what would you say are kind of like some of the key lessons learned in, um, in running high-tech development projects in, in your, in your uh, opinion? So I'm going to do this by some quotes as well. So scale doesn't matter, but it really does matter. So I guess the obvious thing is um, when you're building any hardware, the, the, scale, the size of it is not, the cost is not linear with the size. Um, and I guess the other sort of interesting thing is thermodynamics and turbo machinery don't necessarily scale well. So there's some good examples, even in history of uh, James Watt, where he um developed his engine based on the Newcomb engine on a model that he'd had given to him and his Newcomb engine because it scaled linearly it didn't work so you can't scale thermodynamic problems simply and it goes the same with uh, turbo machinery and I guess to a certain extent heat exchangers you can sort of make them longer or add more tubes Although they're not trivial, with with a turbo machine, you can, for one moment, be looking at axial turbines and then the next minute something completely different, ra radial compressors and turbines. So that's one thing that's really important, how getting the scaling right for everything to work. The other one, this is what the old production director used to say, say, um, if you haven't made a mistake, you haven't done anything, which is, I guess is sort of the fail fast approach. So, yeah, I mean, from my experience, you can employ some expen very expensive consultants and very expensive software to look at, try and analyze problems, but you can't always get an answer. And sometimes the answer is we need to do a test. So in which case you should have done the test and saved a lot of time and money. And the other one is, um, this is like a Warren Buffett quote, so one of the 
the richest men in the world and the top investor. He says, invest in yourself. So I I believe that, um, well, and for key technologies, you need to try and keep as much of the key stuff in-house because otherwise you're paying someone else to learn and develop their own capability. Yeah, I think I think that's a very pertinent lesson, I guess. I mean, we've, we just had, you know, the, the Boeing 737 MAX um, kind of disaster. And in that case, I, I think a lot of it can be traced back to the fact that the company over the last couple of years just outsourced a lot of their key capabilities. So they just ended up becoming kind of like an integrator rather than uh, an engineering company. And that can very quickly kind of, um, you know, ca- cause some problems in terms of technology development. And on the other end of the spectrum, you know, you have kind of all of these new space companies who kind of do everything in-house, you know, they yep. they do the design, the manufacturing, the integration, they do everything. And um, it has some cost, seems to have some cost benefits, but then also, as you just pointed out, you, you really develop your engineers to, um, you know, become kind of the best engineers they can be because they're just in, in involved with uh, the, the the product from, you know, from, from one end to, to, to the other end. They know they basically almost know everything they need to um, about the, 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 the kit that your development developing and i think the the other key thing that you said there is about scale because i've i've recently been working a little bit more in my work with with physicists and one of the things they do really really well is thinking in terms of scale so they try to you know find the kind of fundamental parameters that make something work and then they also want to know well how do those parameters or how does the system scale with those parameters so does the behavior change as you go bigger or smaller or or does it stay the same and as you pointed out, if you really want to kind of develop technology from from a small prototype to something much bigger, then knowing how things scale is actually absolutely critical. Yeah, that, no, that's absolutely right. Okay, John. Well, um, thanks again for uh, coming on the podcast today. It was um, really great to to speak to you today. I mean, we we haven't caught up in in a while since um, we were students uh, together in in, right. in Bristol. So it's really great to to speak to you today. Um, yeah. So if I, if you just have, if you, um, I'll, I'll give you the last word, if you have any parting words, or if you want to direct our listeners to any resources about reaction engines or things that you, um, would be interesting for our listeners to kind of like follow up on after this conversation, please do. Um, I was just, I was almost a comment on your last thing is like engineers love being part of everything. So yeah, if you can keep things in house, yeah, engineers will be really happy. Okay, well, thanks again for coming on the podcast, John. It was a pleasure speaking to you today. If you would like to learn more about John's work and Sabre, then head over to airspaceengineeringblog.com forward slash podcast, where you will find show notes about everything we discussed in today's episode. And if you enjoy the Airspace Engineering Podcast, then there are a number of ways you can support it. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're tuning in. You can share it on social media with your friends and family, or you can support the podcast directly on Patreon. And with that, thank you very much for listening and talk to you next time.